0: It's great to be back again with Ryan. Um, We haven't talked for a while, but the last time we talked, Ryan had some really good news about some exciting things that he was um, discovering through psychology and some of his study. And uh, Ryan said, let's have a part two. And so I'm really eager to hear what's been going on and looking forward to this, Ryan.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for anybody who didn't listen to the first one, I mean, the quick summary is um, I'm a software developer. I am getting my master's in counseling right now. I've been kind of on my own winding journey trying to heal from some stuff. And as I started really getting traction on healing, I started noticing that there was all these kind of weird parallels between the, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual stuff. It was almost like they were all intertwined and all kind of like, interacting with each other in interesting ways. And so Karen and I talked about that a couple months ago. Um, And so, yeah, I just kind of want to continue that same conversation because, you know, back when we talked before, it was like, I was getting traction and it was really starting to go somewhere and I was starting to get a lot of hope and I could kind of see where it was going. And now I'm like, it's really like going, like my physical pain is almost entirely gone my my anxiety and stuff is almost entirely gone I, I'm seeing the world completely differently and um my my attitude towards like spirituality and my my Christianity is a lot different right now and I'm starting to I think understand some of the underlying mechanisms or at least I have some theories about the underlying mechanisms and so I kind of wanted to get into a little bit of that um but just caveat for listeners <laughs> I'm not a scientist I'm not a professional anything so like It's all just speculation for me. Um, So just like take it with a grain of salt or whatever. And I just have a bunch of sticky notes and I'm just going to try my best to make this coherent. Um, I love sticky notes. Yeah. So I'm just going to pick one. The first one that makes sense to me. So it's like, um, I think I told you last time some about like uh, coherence therapy is, is what I'm focusing on right now, which the idea is kind of like seeing psychological problems, not as problems and not as maladaptive, but rather as positive functional purposeful adaptations. And so, you know, if a little kid is in a scary environment and can't control it and can't do anything about it, they need to be able to kind of box it in and shut it down in some sense so that they can, it's like a coping mechanism. Right. And so that coping mechanism might be, um, you know, some some distortion or some like kind of floating away and disengaging, being able to escape into something, right? And that idea was really helpful for me emotionally because I started like that. That was when I that was really what first got the ball roll, ball rolling and got me thinking like, huh, maybe all of my anxieties and stuff is not just like my brain being broken. It's really stuff I developed earlier on that that was serving some purpose. And if I can kind of lovingly, curiously look into that purpose, maybe that'll help transform it. And it did. Right. <clears throat> and then as I was working through that, I started having these strange experiences with my body where, um, like for example, um, I, I was sitting right over there in a chair, maybe like, A couple months ago, like shortly after we talked and I was talking with a friend. I was like, just, we were just talking about life and processing some stuff. And I had this moment where I realized like, oh, I'm no longer angry towards this particular person in my life. And I just kind of suddenly emotionally like accepted that like, wow, I really forgive this person. I really have no animosity towards them. And as soon as I realized that my, my back went like this stuff just released right? And I've had those experiences a lot. Like it's happened, it's happened probably 10 times in the past year, to the point where I'm like, okay, this isn't just random. And I I don't, I'm not making this up. Like there is some real connection there. And it can go in the other direction too. And so you know, that one was, I had this kind of emotional catharsis that led to a physical catharsis. But I've had the opposite too, where um, sometimes like, my, my body pain is just bothering me so much that I'm like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to go get like a resistance band and just pull on it and just pull my shoulder, out, you know, which can help relieve the tension and it can and it can, you know, rearrange stuff in a helpful way. But then for the next, you know, sometimes the next like five or 10 hours or the next day or two, even I would get lost in all this emotional stuff, like some really, really intense anger or some really intense despair um and you know the first time that happened it was very it was kind of frightening because I'm like I don't know what's happening like what I I didn't know to make the connection to the fact that I had just released a bunch of body stuff and so I just thought oh I'm having a horrible day why am I having, having such a horrible day you know but I kept having that experience over and over to the point where I realized like oh okay so if I release the the body tension without first resolving the, the associated emotional stuff, then I am then kind of forced to grapple with the emotional stuff all at once. Right. And so it's, it's, it's this really interesting thing where it seems like, you know, originally I was kind of naively conceptualizing it as like, okay, there's probably some causal relationship. Either the body pain is causing the emotional pain or the emotional pain is causing the body pain. Right. But I'm, I'm starting to reframe it in terms of like, It's not one causing the other there. It's, it's just a complex system, you know, imagine these, these threads that are just getting intertwined, like, like vines, vines from multiple plants that are just growing up and they're just kind of wrapping around each other. And it's like, you know, if you're wanting to kind of unknot it all, um, you know, which ones responsible? There isn't one that's responsible. They're, they're systematically doing this, this kind of, 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 thing together, right? And, you know, unknotting one will allow you to unknot another. And it's just kind of a a, a systematic thing. You know what I mean? Um, And some really curious things I started noticing with that was that it was as if particular postures were associated with particular emotions, right? I started really paying attention to like, you know, why is it that when I pull my shoulder out, I feel certain emotions, right? Why is it that I had an intense day of anger after doing this? Because it seemed very arbitrary at first, you know, and I was just kind of chalking it up to like, I don't know, whatever. There's no real reason. It's just stuff. But I started having these experiences where like um, I would do particular motions or postures. And if I really paid attention to the emotions that were coming up, it was very closely associated with those motions as they would have happened as a kid when I first injured that area. And so for example, the first time I noticed this was like, I, I was kind of having some like, I guess, rotator cuff stuff. Like that's, that's what a lot of this has revolved around. And I noticed that if I, um, I was at the dog park throwing a ball with my dog and I noticed that I was, I was doing this kind of baseball throw thing and it was like flashing me back to my baseball days. Right. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. But, you know, it seemed kind of normal. But then later that day, as I was massaging this stuff, I kept having these really intense flashbacks back to that. And then I worked on it in therapy and it was like, like really, really intense, like flashing back to some kind of traumatic stuff from that time. And it was associated with this motion. Right. And the more I paid attention to that, the more I realized, like, this is really a thing. Um, particular postures are doing certain things. You know, like one, one interesting it's kind experience. Of like the,
0: it's like kind of like the memories. <clears throat> you know, we know that we know that there's neuronal endings everywhere. Yes. So, so the memories are getting built into certain muscle patterns so that when that muscle pattern is, yeah, it seems that way. then that memory comes up
1: well, quite literally that way. Yeah. It, it, it seems yeah. to be. Yeah. And, you know, because because traditional medicine probably would not want to go that far and say that because, you know, I think the, the the perspective of traditional medicine would be like, well, I mean, you know, when you release emotional or when you release physical pain, you feel better. And so that's going to just naturally make your emotions generally better. Like they would see it in a very general way mm-hmm. um, and a very kind of incidental relationship, but not a literal one to one causal relationship. Right. But what I want to argue for and maybe give some examples for is I think there is a real literal very one-to-one causal relationship because of what you just described so so a, a, a practical example is like you know I I had a I had a really hard time in college I was going through a lot you know I was really struggling with my kind of like identity formation which is like a pretty typical college experience right and then I moved away and I just shut it all down and I didn't think about it right and I was always curious for years after that, like why, where did all those emotions go? Like what happened to that, right? But I was never able to access it. I didn't even really have a lot of memories from college. It was very foggy, you know? But I was just so used to that. That's how kind of my whole life had been, right? And so I just thought, whatever, that's just how it is. But um, I realized one day that I was having all this really strong tension right here. and And I found that I could activate it most strongly by doing like this. And then I realized, I was in band all throughout my high school and college years. And I mean, we would do this to be kind of at attention. And so we, we'd we be standing there for, you know, we'd have these two hour practices where a lot of it, we're just standing there like this patiently waiting while the director is moving people around and all that kind of stuff. And so it's as if this, this literal posture was what I was doing all the time. And those were the, those were the, the tissues that were being stressed and maybe slightly damaged for over and over and over and over during those years. And somehow that got associated with all these emotions, because as soon as I realized this, the first time I was, I mean, I was sitting in this chair, maybe, you know, a month and a half ago, and I started doing this and paying attention to the emotions. And it was like, whoosh, all my college emotions just flooded back to me for the wow. first time, for the first time in nine years.
0: Uh-huh. Like,
1: all of a sudden, I was having all these memories and feeling things and remembering people. And it was forcing me to experience the the kind of the sorrow of of those years that I, had, that I didn't want to deal with. And then working through the tension of these muscles required me to work through the tension of those emotions. Because one thing I've found through this experience is if I become aware of the emotions, but I shut them down again, then I can't release the muscles. It's like they lock up. It, it's almost like it requires me to do both of them at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if I'm willing to do that, then it loosens up. I start feeling better physically. I I resolve the feelings associated with those emotions and those memories, and then, and then after that, I'll wake up the next day and I'm just seeing life a little bit differently, you know. And it's just been that that process over and over and over, right? I mean, to the point of like the most extreme example of this I have is like um I could I could go into this kind of uh sort of fetal position type state and it would really kind of trigger almost like the core of my my fears and my anxieties and my despair and stuff. Mm-hmm. And at at first, you know, and I've I've known this for a long time because you know when I get in this posture, it's like it it would trigger me into this fight or flight mode. And and I wouldn't be able to get out of it for 30 minutes or an hour or sometimes longer, you know. Um, But as I've gotten better at paying attention to all this, I've been able to, to start shifting back and forth more easily. And so I can go into this posture and activate that feeling. I mean, it's not really there anymore. There's not a lot happening at this point. But back when there was a lot, it would be like, oh, I'm really immersed in my despair. I'm immersed in my fear and stuff. And then I could work on getting to where I I come up and I'm more in this more kind of like big, wide, expressive, more powerful stance. And it would actually shift my emotions, but it was very difficult to transition between these states. Right. And for some reason at the time, what made sense to me to do was to start working on like a, a little computer simulation of some of my ideas. Like for some reason in my head, that's what made sense to me to do. Cause you know, I'm a that's, that's the type of person I am.
0: I love that.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I don't, it's, it's hard to explain. I don't want to get into too much details, but like imagine like a little, a little amoeba, a little circle, and then there's little dots scattered all around the world, like little, you know, blue and red dots, let's say. And you can move the mouse to kind of guide its attention. And what it's doing basically is the little amoeba, it's just paying attention to everything that's around it, everything it can see nearby. And it has kind of memories in like a little neural network inside it. And it's just feeding the sensory information through the neural network and then making decisions about what direction to move. And so it's gonna be entirely based on the memories, right? (laughs) And so let's say, you know, the meme is right here and there's a little blue dot here. It it generally just wants to go towards stuff. And so it'll move toward the blue dot and that information will kind of get transferred through the network and it'll store most of it right here because it's pretty localized, right? And so now the, the whole network, like this part has, a memory of a little blue dot, right? And so let's say it goes towards more blue dots. Now this part has a lot of blue information, right? But this part doesn't, okay? And so if there's a blue dot down here, this part is still less inclined to go in that direction because it's all been localized up here. Does it kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I have no idea how you'd do something like that, but it totally
1: makes sense. it It doesn't even matter. It was just how I was kind of thinking through the problem. And then I had this moment where I, it was like I was working on this and it was making sense to me. And then it's, it's really weird, but I had a moment where I all of a sudden realized like, oh, I, I imagined eyes being on this thing and the eyes being the direction it's going. And I suddenly, it was like it finally connected the cognitive with the emotional for me, like in a really deep way, because I realized, oh, that's actually what's happening in my brain, like, or in my mind. Like, I have these, in, these moods that have become localized to certain parts of the network And I can activate that by, you know, by, by my posture. And so I can activate the little segment of the mind that has all the fear. And then I can move into the other part of the mind that has some of the more kind of like life, you know, that doesn't have the fear. Right. And it was like this, this massive light bulb for me where, or I suddenly realized like, oh, both of those are me. They're just parts of me that are not talking to each other right? And I know this sounds kooky, but like the moment I had that realization, suddenly I was then able to rapidly transition between the different moods. And so, you know, like I was saying before, it would take me, I I would get lost in my emotions like this. And then I would be kind of in a state of hypervigilance for like an hour until I could finally get out of it, right? But after I had this experience looking at my computer program, I could transition between them in a few seconds, like it was, like my, it was like my emotional brain finally accepted that, yes, Ryan, these parts of you are both there, they're both real, they're both you, and they're both safe to access. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And once the emotional part of me accepted that, and the cognitive part of me had an explanation for it, then it was like free to alternate between them. And then, you know, combine that idea with kind of like Bruce Ecker's work and the whole memory reconsolidation thing where alternating back and forth between two different perspectives actually links those networks together. And then once they're touching, mm-hmm. they can share information. Right. And that's, you know, reconsolidation. It's a, it's a, it's just a process built into the brain. It's not even a process. I mean, it's, it's literally just the parts of the network are, are getting activated and then they're touching. And now that they're touching, they can oh, transfer. So, I
0: mean, that's, that's one way where, they're communicating with each other. And the other way is the the connection that you've discovered between the physical posture or or stress or tension or movement and yeah. the the memories. So so now you have two sets of um, two parts of your bodies talking to each other. You have the two sets of memories that can now talk to each other, but then you also have the memories stored in the muscles that can talk to. That can talk to the cognitive side and the emotional side so it's like you're rewiring the whole setup right um Absolutely. i mean and i've talked about this with you before it's none of this seems surprising to me it's surprising to me that nobody discovered it before but it's not surprising to me that you've discovered it because because you are so patiently willing to observe and to use yourself as your own you know, not guinea pig, your own target or whatever, right. You're, you're willing to, we could use the word witness. You're willing to witness your own States to see what your States are. Um, In just like in a finite state machine, you're willing to see what's happening at each moment and observe that and consider it. And um, I, I know I told you that many years ago I had a lot of body work done by this body work guy and, Sometimes when he would release something, I mean, I would just, I'd be la-di-da, everything is great. And then he would be working. I mean, it, it wasn't easy because releasing some of these muscles is very painful, but he would get yeah. some muscle released. And the instant it was released, I would just be sobbing, just torrents right. of sobbing for 15, 20 minutes. Uh-huh. He'd have to stop working on me because, and I didn't even know. I mean, I, I wasn't, savvy enough at that point to observe what it was that was happening or what had been released but obviously there was some very deep Mm -hmm. trauma or hurt that had gotten bound up in those in those uh, muscles and neurons and you know tension lines whatever whatever it is that connects all that stuff together because our whole body really works on a system of physics Mm -hmm but that system of physics is just there as a framework for everything else to run through. So the physics is there, but the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts and the imaginations and all of that running through that physical network.
1: Right. And One thing. So one thing that's really interesting to me about that is um, I found that as you know, as I started loosening stuff up, it was like my body was more just physically able to go into more postures And I also noticed that I was feeling a lot more um, optimism and just kind of like goofy boyish sort of just like you know, like not as much of the like stoic, old, grumpy, crusty man, but like (laughs) I I started feeling the way I did when I was like a little kid again. And I was like, what's going on there? And my theory about that is like, you know, let's say like as a kid, you're just you're loose, your body's loose, you just all the time, you know? Well, Let's say for whatever reason, like, let's say you're, you're in a family where you're shamed for expression or, or whatever. You still feel safe expressing. Well, you're going to go from like, you're the I'm happy to like, oh, shame, 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 shame. And then you're going to start being less expressive. Right. And so. Now you're not going into those states that you were previously associating with joy. You're just not doing that. You're not going into those postures and those movements. You're not activating those parts of your body right and so it's almost like you start getting this tunnel vision right and and the more time this goes on the more you're kind of compressed down to this one state that's not very expressive right and mm-hmm. now your range of motion is very limited your physical range of motion is very limited but the range of motion of your emotional moods is also becoming limited right you're getting this tunnel vision where now this very narrow aspect of my being is all that I'm able to see right because I'm no longer going into the joyful you know, I'm not, I'm not activating that stuff anymore. I'm just activating sitting in a chair and thinking and moving the mouse, you know, and also
0: your horizon of possibility is shrinking all the time. So, so there's less and less hope for the future or possibility for the future. Everything gets narrowed. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then it's like, at that point, that feels like that's who you are. And so it's like, yeah, you're, you're, Um, You no longer have this, this whole realm of unfolding possibility. It's all kind of this black hole that's collapsing down to almost nothing. And so now you're getting this one perspective, this very limited perspective, which is no longer associated with joy. It's associated with all the shame and all the compression and the pushing and the, you know, I need to conform myself to something. And then now that's all you're seeing, right? And that's very much how my life has felt, you know, for a long time. I mean, I started having you know, breathing issues when I was about eight years old or something. And I think that was from like this process had already begun. I was already starting to compress. My chest was compressing. I was collapsing inward. Can't get a deep breath, which is, which then became associated with anxiety. Right. I I would have these horrible panic attacks as a kid thinking about my breathing. So it's like physically I was collapsing. My lungs couldn't expand as much because I was always in this state and these muscles were shrinking, you know, or, or tightening or whatever. I don't know how it all works. And then because I can't breathe much, it's like a, it's like a negative feedback loop where now my mind is like anxious, anxious, anxious. Cause it's like, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And it's probably also kind of fixated on like shame, 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 shame. And so it's just collapsing. Right. And I've had basically by undoing all the physical pain and all the emotional stuff, it's like reversed all this. Right. And so it's like, I can get deep breaths again. I And just kind of naturally more like expressive and like out there and just like enjoying life and having a good time and, and not caught up in, in that, that narrow perspective because it's now it's like, Oh, I can see all the possibilities. I can look in all the different directions. I can move in all the different directions. It's freeing, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's, it's very free. Right. And, it's, it's just been super interesting. Um, another aspect of this is balance. And so um, I've noticed it most with like left and right. So you know, a lot of a lot of my pain has been localized to the right side. That's where like 80% of it has been, you know. And my, my best theory at this point is that like I spent all my time in front of the computer as a kid. I would I mean 12 hours at a time. just any free time I had, I was in front of the computer. Because it was my escape, it was my safe place, it was like where I felt good, and it's where I felt like I had control. Because, you know, there were aspects of my life that I didn't feel like I had control and were scary to me, but on the computer, I could control everything. I could make this machine do whatever I wanted. And so if I immersed myself in this, and, and this thing had become my whole world, now I'm in control of it. And so these muscles are the ones, you know, similar to to the, the band thing where I was doing this all the time. Same same principle. It's like I was moving the mouse all the time. I was stressing certain muscles, you know, all the time. And that became my whole world. And all of my stress started getting stored in those muscles I was activating, right? And so as I've been undoing this, that's where a lot of it has been localized, kind of in in this region, in this region, all the way through, down through here. But what I found is that, you know, for for most of this process, I would just massage one side of my body at a time and I would get really lost in emotions. You know, even if I did it kind of slowly, it's like I'd spend hours massaging this and loosening things and I'd be lost in the despair and the self-pity and all the stuff I was associating with, like, you know, the reason I'm escaping into the computer. It's like I had to go and feel all that in order to loosen all this up. But then what I started realizing is. You know, I would once I would like have a big release, like let's say I released something in my shoulder and it was able to start moving in this direction. I would then usually need to do a similar thing on the other side, but I would have a totally, totally different mood associated with that. I would go do it on this side and it would be more like anger. So like this side felt powerless. And this side felt powerful, right? And so when I would go release this, this was like, oh, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I want to destroy the world, I want to destroy these people who've hurt me, all this kind of stuff, you know? And so that was really interesting to me. It's like, it, it, it and this, this mood shift was regular enough that I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm making this up. You know, it, it's this side for some reason is associated with one thing and this side is associated with another. And then what I found relatively recently, maybe a month ago is that it's actually much more effective for me to do both at the same time. And so if I'm like massaging, like if I know that I need to release like right here, instead of just doing this, I'll start doing this. And what's happening is a, I don't get lost in my emotions that way. It's almost like somehow they're counterbalancing. So the the powerless side and the powerful side are like dialoguing with each other. Right. And so neither one is dominant. And what happens is if there's a twinge over here, that twinge isn't probably in the same spot over here. And so it's like this one has knowledge of what's normal and what's healthy and this one doesn't. And now that they're in dialogue with each other, Mm -hmm. it's like I can feel it much more easily. Because if I'm just working on this, it's hard for me to know where should this be able to move? How do I need to be able to pull it? But if I'm doing them both at the same time, I can feel what it should be like over here. And so then I can go, "Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So it's like, It's like they're normalizing each other by being in dialogue, right? And because the the dominant side, you know, I'm right-handed. So my dominant side is storing some aspects of, of experience, and this one isn't. And now that they're talking, it's like, oh, they can loosen much more easily. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Oh, it makes total sense. Because one of the things Aaron always told me is that, like, I would be having a lot of pain, let's say on the right side. Mm-hmm. And I would tell him about this pain and he'd start working on the left side and like, like, no, no, Aaron, it's on the right side where the pain is. And he says, just trust me. <laughs> he said, yeah. it's the, the, the pain is always 180 degrees. The, the cause of the pain, the root of the pain is always 180 degrees from the, from the pain itself. And so, or, or maybe it wasn't that the root of the pain was 180 degrees, but the solution to the pain was 180 degrees from the pain. And so he would work on the opposite side, 180 degrees from wherever the problem was, before oh. he would go work on the problem. So now, it may be that part of his system was working on the opposite side would show him I mean, I know what his theory was, his, his theory is that the solution is over there, but it may be that in his act, the reason he came to that is that in working there, he could feel what the right thing was. And then he could, you know, when he got over to the other side, he could fix it. But I don't know. I don't know what the exact key is, but I do know that that because we're supposed to be perfectly balanced, that these things have to be worked on in tandem somehow. Right. So what you're doing right now is like so brilliant that doing at the same time can get them to talk to each other.
1: Yeah. And it'll be quite, I mean, it's like, it's like I'm going 10 times faster by doing that because there are twin, there are little twinges and tightnesses on both sides. But if I'm just kind of like doing the same thing and listening to that and kind of being agile and moving around accordingly, then it's like, release 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 release. you know it's like it's just boom 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 it's just like doing it right and then as as i started doing that i realized like okay the most effective way to do this by far it felt like was like i just need to be able to stretch both sides out at the same time and so i started thinking like okay how how can i do that with just you know no equipment or whatever and i found like okay by far the most effective way to do this was to Stretch it, stretch out as far as I could go and put those both on a wall. Ideally a wall that's like two, two walls that are kind of far apart to where I can just kind of touch on the tips, you know, mm-hmm. stretch out as far as I can like that. And then imagine if those were just fixed there and then I was forced downward. And so it's like, I'm forced to stretch into this position. Right. And the, the best cue for me to activate this was not to just try to force it out. The best cue actually was to literally imagine being on a cross. So I imagined, okay, my hands are nailed to a cross, and I can, and if I relax my legs, I'm gonna fall into, like, I'm gonna get pulled. And ultimately, that's what I want, but it's very, very, very painful, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was the perfect cue for me because it was able to. Let me be in control of how much I'm wanting this and, and let me like work through my unwillingness to submit to it, if that makes sense. Because now I'm like, okay, I can push up with my legs and get back to normal. Then I can imagine like, oh, it's hurting, it's hurting, I need to pull down, I need to let it go, I need to let go, I need to release my spirit. Father, into your hands, I like, commit my spirit, right? When I fully commit to that and let go of it, that's when it really pulls apart, right? And I wasn't getting lost in my emotions at this point because now they're both they're they're talking to each other and I'm becoming myself by doing this, right? Because ultimately, what's happening is I'm loosening stuff according to how my body should be able to move, and so by doing this, by fully stretching and letting letting the cross do the work, I am becoming myself. I am dying to what the I'm dying to the dysfunction that currently is, and it feels like death, but also it's instantly leading to life and what would what would happen in these moments was when i finally got to where i was willing to submit to the pulling and like imagine like okay i'm i'm giving up my spirit and i'm just going to collapse into this it would release and it would be very painful but instantly that posture would become it would stop feeling like a cross and all of a sudden it would flip and it would feel like like a, a victory pose like on on a i'm getting a gold medal at a podium or i'm victorious or i'm on a mountaintop or i'm a little kid running to his father you know it's like without even physically changing anything the posture would start feeling different does that make sense and so it was like and i and i wasn't doing any of this because <laughs> because i'm a christian like when i started doing this I i didn't even really want to be a christian i was still very bitter about my faith But I was like, I don't know. This just makes sense to me, you know? And as I did this, I found, wow, I am releasing my tension and my pain, which is also associated with my emotional pain, which, you know, forced me to confront all of my my bitterness and my resentment. Because ultimately, that's a lot of what's stored here, right? It's like Mm -hmm. I felt hurt as a kid. I felt out of control. And it was a lot of fear. But then that fear would get overlaid with, I hate these people that are putting me in this situation and I hate the world and I hate God and just resentment, you know? And so by doing this, by forcing myself to be on this cross and and get to the point where I'm willing to submit to it, it was like at the same time I'm emotionally working through my resistance to letting go of my sin, you know what I mean? But as I did, I would find that suddenly – It doesn't feel like I'm letting go of something I want. I'm, I'm letting go of it so that I can experience life. It's like, I would be doing this cross thing and pulling down and instantly I would, I would experience forgiveness for people, you know, in the same way that when I was sitting on the chair and I realized that I forgave someone, my, my back went, it's like, this was kind of the, the pinnacle of that process it was like getting me to just do it and do it fully and do it completely. And I would have these just, just beautiful cathartic releases of anger. And then I would just, it's like, I would just feel transformed afterward, you know? And what I found is like, I've, (laughs) I've started doing this like every day, you know, just like bear your cross every day, like do this thing, go to this thing and force myself to release the, the, the tension that has been building up which is forcing me to confront my my emotional issues my fear my anxiety and also confronting me to or forcing me to confront my spiritual issues which are intertwined you know and so it's like this one posture this posture of fully f- full submission right letting letting the world the really gravity just pull you down and what feels like destroying you is actually bringing life, right. In, in all three areas, the, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual all at once. And I have a pretty, I think, decent scientifically validatable mechanistic explanation for how that's happening, you know? And and so I just find that very, very interesting to say the least.
0: Well, there's there's sort of an allegory, um, I'm gonna get the names wrong now. I know. <laughs> in in the Old Testament, when uh, when the Israelites came against the Amalekites, and was it? I'm embarrassed now. Was it Moses? Was it Abraham? Must have been. He he's holding his arms up. And as long as his yeah. arms are up, the battle yeah. is going well, right? Yeah. And then he starts to get tired and his arms start to fall. Mm-hmm. And then the battle starts to go badly. And then right. Aaron and her come on either side of him. So it must have been Moses, yeah. right? Aaron
1: and Aaron on
0: either side of him. They sit him down yeah. on a rock, and then they come on either side of him and they lift his arms up. And as long as his arms are lifted up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there's so many places in the scripture that talks about when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Mm -hmm. And um, and so he was lifted up in that posture. But then when we lift up our praises to him in that posture, that is also drawing all men unto him. And when we lift up our arms in that posture, and it it can't just be an external posture it has to be that submittedness internally right and then so that's kind of what you've discovered is that the way to access that submission internally is to let yourself fall yeah keeping your arms up the the reason this is really interesting to me is the very first exercise Aaron ever taught me when he started rebuilding my back was something he called bliss b-l-i-s-s you go to a doorway that's roughly 30 to 36 inches wide you put your arms horizontally standing at the doorway with your with your palms against the doorway the the rim of the door right and then you bend you bend your knees so you're letting your body sag so your arms are staying yeah, here definitely. your body is sagging and then You lean into the doorway so you can go beyond. So your arms are actually moving back. You lean into the doorway and then you inhale. And then you step, step and push yourself into the room so that your arms are back as far as they can go. So it's completely stretching. It's not just stretching this out this way, but it's stretching this out this way. So you get this very deep stretch in here and then you you move forward and then you come back and then so the first time you step with the left foot and then the right foot and then when you come back and when you do it the second time you step with the right foot first and then the left foot so that you're getting equal stress on the stretching going both ways and that was the first stretch he ever taught me <laughs> and um it is painful
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah but but a very effective stretch but it would have been better if he had taught it to me the way that you're talking about it because then you would get the the emotional and spiritual understanding at the same time. Well that's one of my
1: you know there's a whole there's a whole field of what I'm describing. I've only discovered this recently, but it's kind of like like somatic stuff, mm-hmm. you know, um or or em- embodied cognition. You know, it's all kind of that that arena of things. But one issue that so like like embodied cognition would be the whole like the posture thing causing different emotions or whatever. And they've tried to do some kind of like studies on this that have been inconclusive. And I think it's because of the problem you're describing. So like, you know, you, you there's that Ted talk about the power stance, you know, where that woman describes, Oh, I stay in the bathroom and I do this before my talks and it makes me feel better. Right. <laughs> and I mean, she, and she's probably right. She probably does have that experience, but because she's allowing herself to give in to the emotional, um, the, the things that are emotionally connected with that posture, but probably in a laboratory setting, when you're, when you're trying to conduct a study like this, a lot of people don't know how to do that. And so they can go into this posture all day long, but it's not going to trigger that emotional state because they don't know how to submit to that. They're not aware of it and they don't know how to submit to it. Right. And so it's like, I think scientists are going to have a hard time with a lot of this stuff because they're, they're assuming a very reductionistic kind of view of it all. Like, Oh, if I just, well, if this theory is valid, then I should be able to go into this posture and it'll trigger... No, like it doesn't... like You fool, like it doesn't work that way. Like there's there the will is an essential part of this, right? And if this is associated with a whole bunch of things that a person has been suppressing their entire life, their will is going to be screaming, no, 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 I don't want to go into that emotion. You know, the same is like, you know, the, the goofy, happy kid has been inside me this whole time, but like my body's been saying, no, 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 I don't want to go into that posture. I don't want to go there. Right. And so it's like,
0: <sighs> so why do we run away from the freedom? I mean, what you're so saying think, basically is we could, we could do the happy, goofy, loosey, goosey yeah. kid but but right. there's something that keeps us from doing that what what is
1: that i think it's and and so what's helped me make sense of it is bruce ecker's work the whole um, or i mean it's more than ecker i mean i use ecker because he's the person i found it through but it's like there's there's a lot of people exploring that idea you know like emdr is is um the 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 whole the, the eye movement the thing Oh, all the know.
0: emdr and then there's the tapping oh, yeah
1: tapping i mean anything that kind of stimulates back and forth Um, you know, someone discovered this, I mean, years ago and, and, and realized like, okay, there's some therapeutic benefit to this for some reason, like trauma can be processed by, by doing this bilateral stimulation thing, but no one really knew why. And like, whatever, but I think this kind of thing can sort of account for it because it's like, you know, your, your mind is processing information, right. And uh, I lost the thread. Um, and we come up with these these adaptive responses to things you know and so you know for the little for for the little Ryan that felt scared by his environment or whatever and wanted to escape that escape was my adaptive response right now i'm i'm capable of of going back and experiencing the thing that i was avoiding but i don't want to because i was i was afraid of it you know it would require me to confront it because it's almost like the way our mind works is well, okay, so like, imagine imagine a zebra that's getting chased by a lion, right? It's in this state of hypervigilance. It's running, 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 running. You know, the muscles are really tense, and it gets away from the lion. Well, in the wild, naturally, what happens at that point is you, it shakes it off, right? And, you know, scientists don't quite understand why that is, but you could say, okay, maybe it's like resetting the nervous system, or maybe it's like, you know, these these muscle tensions and muscle adhesions are associated with the memories of fear from that moment. And so it's almost like the muscle adhesion that's preventing movement in that direction is basically like a memory of the fear. It's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to go in that direction. Or, you know, I want to protect the damaged tissue temporarily. So let me kind of harden up around that tissue so that we won't go there, so that it'll be a little bit inflexible. But then when we're in a state of calm and we're in a state where we can heal, then we can shake it, loosen it up, get it, which is gonna require you to engage with the emotions you were feeling at that time because of the, the kind of posture emotion association, right? And so it's like the shaking is a way of like getting rid of the temporary adaptive protective response. But what happens if you never shake, right? What happens to the kid who is developing these adaptive responses, but never deals with them, never shakes them off, you know, physically or emotionally? What, what happens is then you're you're building up all this armor, all this protective armor. You're building up walls and walls and walls. And it's like, you can break down those walls. But the whole point is you built up those walls for a reason. You built up those walls to try to protect yourself from something you're afraid of. And your mind thinks that that threat is still there because you haven't gone and looked at it. You've built up these walls and then never gone back to that. So from your mind's perspective, it's like it's like your mind is like it's, it doing its antivirus thing. It's like, I saw a virus there. I don't wanna go there. Wall, 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 right? Well, from the mind's perspective, it's still there. And you're not gonna know that it's safe until you go look at it, until you go through those walls and say, okay, What's going on there? And once you realize, oh, that threat's not there anymore, you know? I'm not getting chased by the line anymore. That's when it's then safe to get rid of the walls and say, "Oh okay, it's fine to move in this direction anymore. It's almost like it's almost like our mind quarantines areas that it's afraid of. And at the same time, our body is also quarantining tissues that were activated in that moment, right? And you know that's that's kind of speculation on my part. I don't really know if it works that way, but it kind of makes sense, right? It's well, like you said if earlier I'm...
0: about adhesion makes a lot of sense to me because if if this is allowed to go on over a long period of time without being dealt with, then it becomes much more difficult to undo. You can't just shake it off anymore. Once you right. once you go back and look at it and say, okay, well this is nothing to be afraid of, so I can let this go. Now it's going to require work. It's going to require yeah. concerted effort to get all of that loosened up again, because there probably are uh, fascia that have been, you know, damaged or, or tangled up with something. And there are adhesions in the muscles and in the contact connecting tissues and all of that because of the constant stress. And there's probably what my mother used to call proud flesh, you know, scar tissue built up around some of these things. And so, this is why yeah. it took you so long to work through it with your with your muscles yep. and everything, right? So it's almost as though there's going to need to be a new clinical environment that's kind of a connection between body work and psychology, and not just not just the one or the other, or, the, you're, or you or need to work in teams or something like that to yeah. deal with some of these <laughs> issues
1: it sounds to me like that would be enormously beneficial for a lot of people um it would require a paradigm shift in the field in the helping field because we're so segmented where we we have we're so cartesian that we think the mind and the body are totally separate and that's starting to change you know um you know that book the body keeps the score it kind of has has really seeped into pop culture and a lot of people are starting to be aware oh there is a real connection between mind and body you know and i think through these kind of um somatic experiential therapies like emdr people are starting to clue into this problem like okay there really is a connection between mind and body that we should respect you know because like in something like emdr you're actually paying attention to the body as a as a metric for seeing how intense the uh, the trauma is still stored, you know? And so you can say like, uh, I, I, I have a ton of anxiety and and I'm ma- imagining a moment of anxiety that I had recently. And you'll be asked, okay, where are you feeling that in my body? Okay. I'm feeling it right here. And you're told, okay, focus on that. And literally it's like, okay, you start focusing your attention. You start witnessing, you start paying attention to that. And then, and, and and it's like something about that allows you to then engage far more deeply with the mental network that is associated with that, right? And so this is starting to become more widely accepted. But, yeah, I think it'll probably be some time before people would really be willing to accept, like, you need deep body work alongside deep emotional work. But I do think it would be effective. You know, and so I would love to see some of that kind of stuff pop up.
0: Well, you may be the guy to make it happen, who knows?
1: Maybe so. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you're working on this with your with your master's work, maybe you need to make some connections with people that are effective in the bodywork area, you know.
1: Yeah. Probably so. I mean, I I know you've, you've connected me with Aaron. We haven't talked yet, but I imagine, <laughs> I imagine he and I would have a lot to talk about mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll be doing my, my school like internship with people who are, are on the same wavelength, I think with mm-hmm. me about all this stuff, you know, and, and in their own way, they're, they're, they're trying to kind of enter into that space and recognize that, okay, we need, not just to deal with people's mental stuff in counseling, but also kind of their, their well-being as a whole, because it's all interconnected, you know?
0: Well, I mean, it totally makes sense that anxiety is is not just a mental thing, right? I mean, I don't understand how it could have gone for such a long time with the idea that anxiety is strictly a mental yeah. thing, because anxiety just affects every aspect of your physical being as well i mean it drives the heart rate and the breath rate and um Mm -hmm. it has such a huge physical impact on a person that it only stands to reason that it's also arising out of at least partially a physical cause along with the mental it's
1: it's kind of the master and, and his emissary problem you know the mcgilchrist stuff it's like we've Philosophically, for for many generations now, we've bought into this idea that oh yeah, my mind is in control, my cognition is in control of everything. So I just get my cognitions right, everything will work out. And it's like it's just not true. It's like, but it but it's going to require us to have the humility to admit that because because I think that probably is very scary for people to admit. You know, like if I if I admit that my cognitions are not really in control of my life what does that mean? That means then that my body is in my nervous system and all these things really are mattering a lot. And they all need to be in dialogue with each other as, as equals in a sense, you know? Um, or even if you want to get really dark with it, I mean like a, you know, like an evolutionary psychologist might say, well, you're primarily your body and your mind is just kind of an evolutionary edge that you developed. But like, it's just a, a thin layer on top that, you know, And maybe more of that perspective could be helpful. I don't know.
0: Well, but on the other hand, I mean, you did talk about how um, you came to a place where your mind now recognized, oh, wait, now I understand intellectually what was happening. And that in itself, that realization helped you immensely. So, I mean, the Mm -hmm. two do have to work. It's like these two sets of things have to meet. <laughs> they have yeah, to talk I to each
1: other. To come together. And that's almost like what it's been like in my experience. Like that, that moment where I was looking at that computer program and had that light bulb, it, it really felt like the moment where heaven and earth touched. It's like I had been living up in heaven. I've been living in my cognitions for my whole life because I was so dissociated. And then I, I kind of had some knowledge that the body stuff was relevant, you know, but then once I kind of like joined them, it was like, oh, now they're in dialogue with each other. You know, this incarnation has happened. Right. And now mm-hmm. this this loving, healing relationship can 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 begin, you know, in, in a way that it really hasn't for my whole life. You know.
0: Well, that in itself is a beautiful picture of. Um- the the joining of heaven and earth being a joining well i mean it's like we've talked about so many times that marriage is really like at the foundation of everything and that the marriage between heaven and earth the marriage between christ and the believer um that that it is a marriage that where where that loving care has to be work working in tandem together to keep that that unity you know, keep the unity yeah. in the spirit, that that's the beautiful thing that brings the healing and the wholeness. And uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's, and it's like the way it felt, you know, quite actually, you know, like I was describing earlier with that, that, that narrow mindset that I had as a very dissociated, you know, person living entirely in heaven. That part of me had to be willing to come down and die. It had to be willing to connect with the physical, connect with the body. And it had to be willing to let that perspective go away for the sake of seeing the whole thing, for the sake of bringing it all together. And so, I mean, very, very literally, the pattern of Christ seems to be the pattern of how I've experienced all this healing. You know, this, this willingness to become incarnate and, and live among my physical embodied cognition you know, my my cognition has to become embodied, it has to become incarnate, it has to deal with all this, and be willing to die to itself, be willing to be torn apart, to be torn asunder, which leads to a death that is resurrection. And they are the the death and the resurrection are the same experience, you know, in some manner. And that leads to healing and unity and and now heaven and earth are connected eternally you know it's like it, it it just makes a lot of sense to me at this point you know
0: well it's when you were talking earlier about maybe the mind is not in control and and that scares us but maybe maybe what's happening is that the mind is in some sense in control in the same way that with heaven and earth, obviously heaven knows a lot more than earth does, Right. But the mind has to give up control in order, you know, like kenosis, like Christ gave up everything in order to come to earth and be, be incarnated into the flesh and to dwell among us. And, and the mind has to give up control in order to come and be fully embodied so that the healing can take place in the whole person and not just in the head. Right? I mean, I yeah, that's what I hear you saying. And to, I mean, if that's really I mean, that's to me, that makes total sense. I don't know if I've misrepresented what you're saying, but
1: well, it makes sense. And you know, I, I, um, to kind of shift gears a little bit. I mean, part of, um, part of what I'm realizing through this is um, doing all this has forced me to confront my bitterness and my resentment, which has forced me to like, basically realize like, if I want healing, I have to forgive. Not because it's arbitrary, not because like God's up there finger-wagging, saying, I'm not going to grant you this until you do the thing I commanded you. It's not that at all. It's baked into the system. It's baked into the rules of the system, the way it functions. It's, it's like gravity, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's It's... The state of forgiveness is the state of letting go of this pain and this resentment. And so if I'm saying... I want my body and my mind and my spirit to heal, but I'm not willing to let go. It's almost like saying, I want that experience of being stretched out on the cross, but I'm not willing to go to the cross, you know? And I've really had to be confronted with that through all this, you know, because there is some resentment that I do not want to let go of. Um, but now I'm realizing like, that's basically equivalent to me saying, I want to hold on to the pain. You know, it's like Jesus asking that guy, like, do you want to be healed? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you can, it's freely available. Nothing is stopping you from being healed, but do you really want it? Because to want it is the same as, it, it, it's the same as being willing to let go. You know, if, if you want the victory stance, that's the same as the cross, you know, they they are the same experience, you know, and I I think, you know, to be a little bit vulnerable, I mean, like, I am your pretty typical millennial who really struggles with unforgiveness towards my parents, right? And I'm not going to go into details, but, like, I I have wanted for years so badly to hold on to this resentment, right? And I'm realizing, okay, I'm free to do that if I want, but that probably means I will never let go of this pain. And if I really want to be freed from this pain, I think it will involve me letting go of that resentment and being willing to see my parents from all these different perspectives. And so not just from the perspective of me as a little kid who is feeling hurt for various reasons, but also being willing to see the perspective of, you know, my parents who are providing tremendously and trying very hard to provide for me and also seeing the perspective of my parents as little kids who they, they had their own wounds and their own difficulties, you know? And so it's like the act of being able and willing to alternate from, to between all these different perspectives is kind of the same as the act of me being able and willing to alternate between these different moods. Does that make sense? And, and so it, it it's as if what it feels to me is that forgiveness is the same as being willing to adopt a new perspective, you know, and not being threatened by it. Um, and it doesn't mean I need to, it doesn't mean I need to lie to myself about anything. On the contrary, it means, no, I am, I'm fully acknowledging reality. Not just the aspect of reality that I've been stuck in, but all these other aspects of reality. And once I can freely see it all and I'm willing to map it all and be okay looking at every direction of this map, that is, that's the process of healing, you know?
0: And I, I also do think there's this aspect, I mean, you, you, you brought that up just now, but you, I mean, you 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 fleshed it out more but just to zero in on this idea that it isn't really helpful to say oh well they didn't mean it they were doing their best whatever and then thinking oh now i've forgiven you haven't really forgiven Mm -hmm. until you've forgiven something and the something that you have to forgive is the part where they actually were guilty so the way years ago, my pastor's wife explained it to me was, you have to have a little trial. Now, it happened to be with my father, and my father was, had already passed away, so I couldn't talk to him about it, but I had to have a little trial in my bedroom where I had a piece of paper. These are the things that I was holding against him. These were the things I felt that he had, had, you know, where he had hurt me, things that he had... um. Even though he had his own wounds and all of that. I mean, I understand all that. Nevertheless, my life was affected by these actions that he took and have a trial and figure out was he actually guilty of things or not guilty of these things and which of them was he actually guilty of. And once I had the trial, then I could say, okay, now as, as the judge and as the jury, I can say, okay, he's guilty, but I am going to forgive him all the consequences. And I'm going to just say, not that he's not guilty, but he's forgiven. He's pardoned. And I can do that. I can pardon him. And, And then when I do that, then that also takes the burden off of me because I'm no longer carrying this thing around anymore. But if I didn't have the trial and actually confront myself about what actually was the guilt and what wasn't the guilt and. You could spend all day balancing the guilt against all the good things. He gave me life. He, you know, he, he supported us to the extent that he was able to do and all of that kind of stuff, but that doesn't help with the forgiveness issue. (laughs) Forgiveness issue has to, you have to be forgiving something just this amorphous. Oh, well, they did the best they could. That never gets at the root of the bitterness because the bitterness is there because of some actual. Maybe, maybe not always, maybe some people are holding bitterness over something that never really happened, but then you can have that talk with yourself too. You know, did that actually happen? Did it not actually happen? What yeah. was the impact on me? But simultaneously, while you're doing that, you also have to let go of your own need to shift the blame onto somebody else for things that you yourself are currently responsible for. Right. Yeah. So, so both of those things have to happen.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and like the, 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 the assigning responsibility thing has been on my mind a lot. This is kind of the edge of my thinking. And so I, you know, this might be wrong, but like, you know, to, to just take a practical example, like, let's say, you know, I've had all this pain associated with me using the mouse all the time. I mean, basically like it, it feels almost as if my like carpal tunnel syndrome has just like spread throughout my body, you know? Um, in the past, I, I wanted to kind of naively assign blame to one entity for this. Like, okay, who who's responsible for my pain? And I, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't think there is an answer. Because, like, okay, I was sitting in front of the computer all the time because I chose to. So I'm responsible. But why did I choose to? Because I was, I was in an environment that I was afraid of, and I was trying to escape, you know? And so... All the things associated with that environment are responsible. And then, you know, my family could have said, hey, Ryan, like, get your butt off the computer and go outside, you know? And they did that some, but not very much. And so, like, there's some responsibility there. There's some responsibility with just, I'm I'm growing up in the internet age. You know, if I was living a thousand years ago, there'd be no computer to sit in front of, you know? So it's like, you can you can look at responsibility at all these different layers and levels of abstraction, and it's like it's all it's all there, you know. And so at that point, it just it reminds me of um, the brothers Karamazov, the the kind of like huh, uh, saintly patriarchal religious figure in that book. This this whole Dostoevsky novel. Mm -hmm. he kind of gets into this idea where he's like you know he 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 recommends the main character you need to see the world as like you were responsible for everything and I, i didn't really get that at the time when i read it and i'm not even sure i agree with it necessarily but i just find it very provocative and i think it kind of relates to this where it's like okay well my muscle pain who's responsible i'm responsible and then my, you know, my, my family's responsible and my, my community, my culture, everything is contributing to it, you know? Um, and something about realizing that and emotionally accepting that was very helpful and healing for me, even though it, it, it really, it raises a lot of questions also, you know?
0: Well, I mean, the thing about seeing yourself as responsible for everything is good in at least in this respect. Now, Full disclosure, I haven't read Brothers Karamazov. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about it plenty, but I haven't read it. um Let's say I'm responsible and that's nested inside my father's responsibility and my community's responsibility and society's responsibility and all that. Yeah. Okay. But who can make a change? I'm the only one that can make a change. So if I see myself <laughs> yeah. as responsible for everything, then something will happen because the only moment I have is right now, all that stuff yeah. that happened in the past, nobody has any control over that. I don't have any control over that. All I have control over is what I do right now. And that's, if I see myself as responsible for everything then I, I know what to do, I know what step to take because I can handle the responsibility that I have now in reference yeah. to your, your carpal tunnel pain, you know, you're working through that emotionally, physical therapy, you're 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 working on that in every way that you can. So you're doing what you can with the responsibility that you have for that, because part of it was your responsibility. You can't yeah. fix the other people, obviously. Right. You can't fix the society.
1: <laughs> right. All, yeah. All, yeah. You, okay.
0: all you can fix is the part that you can fix, but but I also believe <clears throat> that God is faithful. And if we if we work on the responsibility that we have in the moment, then he can take care of all the rest of that stuff because, because he's a loving God. He's actually, he, he's on our side. He actually cares that, that we can work through yeah. things, you know? So when we take on our responsibility, he comes in and he makes up the difference. Mm-hmm and that's that's just the way i see things maybe it's maybe there's a naivete there <laughs> i don't know but what, um
1: <laughs> what other way is there to live you know like yeah. if if i if i refuse to take action until you know because the it sounds goofy to say out loud but it's like where i was stuck for a long time and to an extent i'm still kind of stuck there is like i don't want to move forward until someone else acknowledges their complicity or whatever and it's like okay it it probably would be good for other people to take responsibility but also they can't change the past and am i am i gonna put my life on pause and put my own healing on pause for the sake of of that that seems kind of goofy right and so yeah i mean it, it's almost like the the only way to move forward in life is to just you know, accept and commit. You know, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole style of therapy based around that. You know, acceptance commitment therapy, and um but it also requires you to confront your own the, the sense of unfairness that can come with that. But I mean, that's I mean, that's like one of the core sins of my generation. Is like we. Have been unable and un- unwilling to accept that people people are born in a different families and different contexts and are affected differently by you know I mean it's the whole problem of intersectionality you know mm-hmm. the kind of, kind of intersectional feminist queer theory stuff is all about like we need to assign all we need to properly assign all the responsibility to all the stuff you know and it's like that's that's an ex that's a combinatorially explosive problem you cannot solve that problem right and i i I just like i don't want to i don't want to be an insensitive jerk that denies all of those realities but like also are are we are we going to heal by by doing all that blame shifting and blame assigning like i don't think so you know
0: well the other thing you have to take into consideration and i you know i i i didn't figure a lot of these things out until i mean this sounds more radical than it really is cuz i i've i'm not i've had a good life i've had a lot of opportunities and a lot of amazing experiences but In some of these areas where I was shifting blame, I didn't start figuring things out until I was in my 60s. And if I had figured it out when I was in my 20s or 30s, who knows what I could have done with my life, you know, because you only have one life and it's your life. And and because I really believe that, that God gave me life, then he also put all these opportunities out there in front of me that I could have walked into if I had been willing to let go of that shifting blame onto other people. If I had been willing to take responsibility, like in my own case, and I'll be very vulnerable here, in my own case, it's always been a problem with food. I let food be my idol for many, many years. And 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 then I would blame other people for it. Well, if, if so-and-so would just accept me the way I am, And not demand me to be a certain way, then, then, then I could get control of my eating, because then I would be truly loved, you know, if if people would just love me the way I am, then I could be a different, well, maybe they just can't, who knows why. But what if I had taken, what if I had taken some steps and just said, you know what, I'm addicted to food, I've allowed food to become an idol. That's written up in the Bible as gluttony. Maybe I ought to do something about that. And why should I think that I can get by without exercising? Our bodies are built in such a way that reality means you have to take care of your body. You have to move, you have to exercise. What good does it do to shift the blame onto somebody else and say, Oh, woe is me. I wish somebody else would fix my life. If I don't fix my life, it's not going to get fixed. And so at some point, When you realize this is my life, I better do something about it. (laughs) And you might as well start now. Why wait until you're 30 or 40 or 50 years old and then things just get more and more and more difficult? Why not tackle it now? And then you have this road of freedom ahead of you, right? If you can get free of the bitterness and the blame shifting and all that, then you have this whole life of freedom ahead of you to to accomplish whatever the Lord has tasked you with and to, to just walk in that freedom. I mean, it's, uh, in my case, you know, and probably, I don't know, a lot of people might say, Oh, you're handling it wrong. But in my case, I just have to stay away from sugar and yeah. white refined products. And if I do that, I have absolutely no temptation. I'm at peace. My life goes well. I'm healthy. I have energy. and then, if I come if I get along to some point where I say, "Oh, well, that looks awfully good, and just a little bite won't hurt. <laughs> it just leads to more and more and more, and then I'm right back on that same old path, and then I can and that and it's a funny thing. It's almost like some dark spirit takes over that convinces me. It's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. Why were you born this way that sugar has this effect on you? Or, you know, why were you born into a world where you can't just eat whatever you want to eat? Why not just eat whatever you want to eat? You know, that's the way the world is. Well, no, it's not. So today I was reading this article. I think some guy was talking about maybe the Catholic church or something, but he was talking about the church in general and how What the, what the strengths are of being part of the church. <clears throat> and I mean, I would calibrate it out to what the strengths are for being a believer, for being a Christian, rather than being in some particular hierarchy. And that's not to say anything against people of any faith, but I mean, just for me. But the thing that he said that was so interesting was that he had gone to confession and then uh, like a week or so later, he ran into somebody that he recognized that had been standing in the confession line with him. And so they're at this coffee shop like two weeks later. And he said to this guy, he said, oh, I saw you at, at church last week, you know, when I was standing in line for confession. And so they got talking about confession. And the other guy said, yeah, it's, you know, it's amazing. After after I go to confession, I always feel so free. And, you know, it's just like my whole life just turns around after I've gone to confession. And so the first guy says, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? It's almost as though it's real. And then he went on to explain what he meant by that, that these things that the Lord tells us are important in our lives He's not telling us that because he's saying, if you don't go to confession and confess your sins, then, you know, you're not going to get the good stuff. Or if you don't do this, I'm not going to love you. It's like, this is the way the world works. And when you do these things. This is the world you can. This is. If you want to dwell in the kingdom of God with all the riches and freedom and glory that exists in the kingdom of God with other believers as citizens of heaven in the here and now, you can do that at any minute just by starting to obey. Because obedient yep. leads you right into the presence, right?
1: It's exactly. Like To, to, to map it on to the kind of materialist terms we were talking about earlier, it's like going to confessional. Or going to confession and like saying out loud those parts of your your mind that you're terrified of, it's equivalent to saying, "Hey, go, blah, go do, go be expressive and move into all those positions you're afraid to, that your body's afraid to." You know, it's the same with the mind. It's 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 like saying, "Go be free, go activate that stuff, so that you can see, oh, there's actually nothing to be afraid of here." Go, you know, that area of your mind that you've built up all these walls around and you're afraid to go look at, go look at it. Go in that confession booth and look at it and you'll see that there's nothing there anymore. There is no threat. It has been removed. It has been forgiven. It's gone. You know, and it's like, exactly. It's not arbitrary. It's not finger wagging. It's like, go be free. This is how you be free. The truth will set you free. Acknowledge reality go look at the things you're afraid to look at and you will see there is no threat. Unless of course there is threat. I mean, some people are actually genuinely in threatening situations. Right. But like most of the time we were in a, th- we were in threat in the past. Our sin was causing destruction in our lives. And now it's like, okay, if if you move on from that and then you go look at it like, Oh, there's nothing to be anxious about anymore. Like, yeah. There's, there's consequences from it, maybe, but, like, we're here now. We're here in the present now. We're not back there. That's the past. That already happened, but we're here. You know, and I think things like confession can can kind of draw that out. In a way, yeah, it's not arbitrary.
0: Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's... God is just so good, you know? He's, he's so good all the time, and where we get twisted up is when we start imagining that what are actually natural consequences of our behavior is some sort of imposed punishment. And then that feeling of having this punishment imposed on us gets us to puff out our little chests and get all involved with pride. And why are you doing this to me? And I don't deserve this kind of treatment. When, it's just the way the world, the world is built in a certain way, and when we when we dwell in it in reality, then it's very beautiful. But if we choose to dwell in our own illusions, so I saw so I had a very interesting thing today when I was studying the Bible. <clears throat> I had been looking at First 1 King sixteen twenty six, and it's about the. Amri, Om, who was one of the kings of Israel. And he was, as always, the kings just get worse and worse and worse. And so he was the worst king of anybody who came before him. And at the very end of that verse, it says something like, um, because he took Israel and, and led them on the path of idols. So I thought, Well, okay. What is that word idols in this verse? Because there are many different words translated idol in the Old Testament. But in that verse, what is it? And I looked it up, and it's actually the word Hebel, which means, well, Hebel was the root of the word. And that means emptiness or vanity. Or or illusion. Or, you know, the idea of nothingness. Like it's all nothing. Then I looked closer at the word and Hebel is the root of it, but the actual word is, and I'm not going to pronounce this right, but it's something like Behebel, 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 it looks a lot like Bethlehem, except it's got this word Hebel stuck in the middle of it. And I thought, I wonder if it has any connection to Bethlehem. Well, what did Bethlehem mean? So I went back and I looked at the word Bethlehem and Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus came, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's like so beautiful, house of bread. But, um, and I don't know Hebrew. So if anybody knows Hebrew, I hope they jump in here. But as well as I could tell, when I looked at the Hebrew characters, it looked to me like it was Bet Lehem with Hebel stuck in the middle.
1: Like how like, like nothingness. Like like you're, the, you're house,
0: the house the of empty bread, the house of vain bread, the house of bread that is not bread. You know, like right. in Isaiah where where they're saying, why do you? why do you spend money on bread that is not bread? And then when Jesus talks in his day, he says, come and get this bread at no cost. There's no cost for this bread, but this is the real bread. This is the bread of heaven. But back then they were trying to buy a bread that was not bread because it does not feed you. And that's what idols are. They're what You think is going to solve your problems. They're what you think is going to feed you and nourish you and give you fullness, but there's nothing there. It's not reality. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's just that, that seems to be what I'm finding with all this healing stuff. It's like, it feels almost like. Tautological in a sense. It's like I've been searching for the the solution to my pain. And it's almost like I was saying, I'm not gonna let go of it until I find the solution. But like the solution was to let go of it, to have the the courage and the humility to let go of it. And in doing so, I had to experience a death that is leading to life, you know? And that's that's not it's not a punishment and a reward. It just is the way reality works. I have to be willing to change if I want change. You know, I have to be willing to let go if I want to let go. Like, it's, I mean, it sounds stupid to put it that way, but that's, in hindsight, that's kind of how it feels. It's like, oh, all along, I've had the agency to let go of this pain and this resentment and all this stuff that's just gunking up my life. But I've been afraid to, for various reasons, you know. And it's almost like I I wasn't willing to confront that problem until the pain got so bad I couldn't handle it anymore, you know. Which is in a weird way a mercy, because if I had lived the rest of my life with kind of a dull pain that wasn't super bad, but it was just like eh, this this stinks, I might have gone the rest of my life in that state, you know. Mm-hmm. and so it's just very I, I i don't know all this is very curious to me
0: yeah especially that whole part about what is a mercy what is a blessing you know um, and I think a lot of people will say once they've come through on the other side that the real blessings were the things like that that catapult you out into the chaos and yeah uh, which is always one of the things I liked about Jordan Peterson is that he taught, he teaches that when you're in the chaos, that's where all the new possibility and information resides. So you can look around in the chaos and you can discover things and you like you have, you got plunged in the middle of this chaos and you opened your eyes and you witnessed what was there and you observed what could be seen and what could be understood. And you observed yourself in the midst of it and you saw where God was applying his mercy and you, you got this revelation, right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably would not have happened if you hadn't been plunged into the chaos.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's a revelation also that I feel like, you know, everyone's experiences are different, but I'm so glad I've had this experience now going into my my new career as a counselor because now i i've i've experienced what that transformation can look like and what what is involved in that and it's like i just have this newfound optimism for like yeah people can change like people can heal like things can happen you know and it and it doesn't have to be because external circumstances change it's You know, a lot of my issues were because of the way my mind was processing information. And now I'm processing information differently. I'm seeing differently. I'm just aware of things I wasn't aware of before or aware from a different perspective or whatever, you know? And um, that just, it makes me excited to think that like, okay, that's available to a lot of people, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that can find some relief through that, but it will require you know, maybe not as literally as it was for me, but it will require kind of metaphorically speaking, a cross, you know, Mm -hmm. that will seem like this unbearable death and suffering, but once it is accepted and submitted to, it will actually be life, you know. Um, At least I hope so.
0: Have you ever read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader?
1: A long time ago.
0: Yeah. yeah, probably, yeah they, I remember yeah. the beautiful image of Eustace mm. after he becomes a dragon and then the dragon skin becomes so tight on him. He can just barely tolerate it. He's in so much pain and agony and he's trying so desperately to peel it off of him and he just can't get it off, you know? And right. that Christ comes and peels it off for him, but it's almost unbearably painful. But if he just lets it happen, you know, the dragon skin eventually comes off and then he's a real yeah. boy again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lewis really liked that image because he uses the same exact image in um, The Great Divorce. You know, there's a guy that has this lizard on his shoulder that's speaking mm-hmm. lies into his ear. Mm-hmm. And the guy and an angel comes and says, Hey, I can, I can take that away from you. And, and it, he's, he's unwilling because he's like, no, no, no. I mean, this is me. Like, I need this. And, but the angel's like, no, like there is no time. Let me take it from you now. You know, and the angel is persistent. And finally the guy gives up and it, the way Lewis describes it is, is beautiful because it's, it's something like, you know, this, this man like whimpered like a little child and then, the angel grabs the lizard and 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 the narrator heard this scream like no other scream that's ever been heard, you know, and then the man says, I'm done for. But then he, but then he transforms and he's alive, you know. And so it's almost, yeah, it's like Lewis understood this. Mm-hmm. Like, probably a lot of people have experienced it in their own way, you mm-hmm. know, and I just couldn't see it until I experienced some of it for myself, you know. Mm -hmm. and that's that's the curious thing about all this it's like you know if i could go back and talk to my 20 year old self and tell him all this he might not benefit very much from it you know Mm -hmm. he wouldn't be ready to listen and um i mean he who has ears to hear let him hear right i mean that's that's what it is and
0: and honestly what would your what would your career in counseling be without this experience so you you have to experience it for yourself because that's what gives, you a, what gives you a witness into the world. I've been, here's where I've been. And and then you you when you come out the other side, you've got something to share with people. You've got a truth that you couldn't have gained any other way. You could read about that in the book and you could say, well now. In this book, such and such, it says this, but how powerful is that going to be in anybody's life? You know?
1: Yeah.
0: It's just not going to do it. But hearing you talk about it, it makes me tremendously excited for, for people who are in the valley, you know, that um I've had my own valley experiences, and and through them I have just an unshakable faith that God is good and that. He will always be there with us but but i haven't had that experience that you've had and that experience that you've had is going to inform what you do in your counseling and what you learn about and what you're able to tell other people and help them with and um it's very exciting
1: yeah it is
0: i'm so thankful you were willing to share it with us because i know <laughs> it requires being open and vulnerable and um letting a lot of that stuff get peeled off and
1: yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's, you know, interesting to people beneficial in some manner.
0: Well, I don't really care. We've had fun talking
1: about it. Yeah, that's true.
0: (laughs) You know, I've sort of given up expecting to have a big audience for anything because, um, I think the people who need to come here come here, but it's you know, it's a pretty small audience, but you know, that's in God's hands, right? Not mine, so. But if anybody's still listening at this point, you could always click like (laughs) and (laughs) subscribe. Although, I don't think you know, subscribing is supposed to help in terms of getting out to the algorithm, but I don't notice that it's made that big a difference at all because. I have a lot more subscribers than I ever have viewers unless I get somebody kind of famous on. So, um, but I do think if people like something, if they share it, I think that makes a difference with the algorithm.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, I mean, a lot of this content is just not conducive to TikTok culture, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess that's just the way it is.
0: But I'm sure that there are people who know people who could really benefit from this content. So if you know somebody like that and you can share it with them, then that will extend the reach and get it to the people that need to hear it, so. So when do you finish your degree?
1: So it's I'm, I'm doing it as a two-year program and I'm about halfway through. And so in May, I'm gonna start in a year-long internship where I'll have, you know, real clients for a year. Um, and then at that point I'll have the degree and I can do whatever I want with it. You know. And so right now I'm gonna be keeping my software job and doing the counseling at the same time, mm-hmm. you know. And then after that, I'll I'll figure it out. I mean, I like being, i I like being a software developer, you know. And so it's like I, I have no intention of doing that up. Um and well, so
0: especially if you can design these little. I don't know what you call that thing that you designed, that little widget. Yeah. That,
1: that well, Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I really materialize
0: the, what's yeah. happening, right? Well,
1: what's interesting is I, you know, it was powerful for me in, in my own way. And I've showed it to to two other people. And both of them gave me like, I mean, it, it was like a very powerful experience for them as well. And so it's like, OK, it really seems like that there might be something beneficial there, you know, mm-hmm. because fundamentally what it, what I was trying to do with it was show that um, perspectives can be localized in the mind. And each of them, when you're operating from that perspective, it feels like reality. And so it allows you to kind of toggle between these two modes where you can see, oh. This seems like reality, but then you can look at the whole thing and go, but wait, they're all there, you know, and, and the the kind of key component of this thing is like, this thing would move on its own once it started having memories, you know, and so it's, it's almost like you're, you're training it like a little baby, you know, it, at first it has no knowledge of anything. And so it's just going to follow the mouse and go to whatever's nearby. But as it starts gaining experiences, it starts moving naturally towards whatever, however it is perceiving the information from that angle, you know? And so if, if this side has a lot of experiences with red it's like, Oh, I want to go towards red. And this side doesn't, this side won't care about red, but this one will, you know? And so you can kind of see how it chooses to move in that direction. And then once it gobbles up the red over here, it might not care about red over here. So it's not going to like instantly go that way. And so you can kind of see in real time, Oh, There are various perspectives that are driving the behavior of this entity, and it's all about those perspectives, Mm -hmm. and the way those perspectives are interacting with each other is based on the landscape of this neural network, and so if you can get those two things to to connect with each other, now those those previously separated perspectives have become unified, and now the whole thing is going to have a cohesive, coherent, consistent response to stimuli, you know? And that feels like the process of becoming unified, you know? So like, I'm personally like my, um, uh, therapeutic, the way I see therapy is like Gestalt therapy where it's like, you know, when you have all these parts that come together, something emerges from that that's greater than just the little parts, you know? And so that's just what clicks with me. And that's kind of how I made that little computer program. And anyway, I, I I bought a domain name, like I'm planning to like really flush it out and make it a thing that I can show people and they can look at. And so like, hopefully, hopefully it would be beneficial, you know, but I'm not. It, I'm it occurs
0: not. to me that it might even be beneficial. You know, there's several of these groups like Braver Angels, and I can't mm-hmm. think of some of the names of the other groups, but they're all working on this problem of the polarization. Yeah. And how. The polarization is increased because we each get in our own little silo and then we only look at the thing that's drawing us Yep. and it, it sounds very similar to that on a cultural level societal level
1: yep and and that was that was a big thing for me as i was designing it because it seemed like it's a it's a pattern of of reality at, at a bunch of levels right because because i'm I'm mostly applying it to my individual self. Right. But, but yeah, you're right. It's like, it's the same as, you know, you could think of this little amoeba as like the, the global community, you know, we're all, you know, we've got our little, this little corner of the internet over here. And then you've got like, you know, Sam Harris's little corner of the internet over here and all these other little corners. And it's like, the extent to which we're dialoguing with each other is going to be the extent to which we are sharing perspectives and becoming a unified whole. Now, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. And this was one of my fears as I was doing all this for myself was like, when I started realizing I've got all these little separate selves within me, I was terrified. Like, what's the end result of this going to be when I bring them all together? So I thought like, I, I literally do not know who I will be at that point, you know? Because I've been living from this one perspective and like, this is what I know. I don't, I haven't engaged with all these other perspectives for a long time, you know? But to my relief, what I found was that the predominant version of me actually is that goofy, happy, boyish, whatever, you know, that has just been locked away forever. So like, it's been a relief, like, oh, okay. I'm not becoming some like grotesque monster, you know? I'm like, I'm actually okay. And that's probably true at higher levels of abstraction, you know, a dysfunctional family. It's the same pattern. It's like mom acts this way and brother acts this way and sister acts this way and whatever. And like, as, as they come together in dialogue with each other, the network heals and healing is just the separate parts talking to each other. And, and now their information is flowing freely and they're sharing perspectives and and now they're operating as a more coherent whole, you know? and so
0: yeah that that's that's really true especially with and that's really true with families and i'm sure it's true also at a societal level and it's probably true also at the individual level that dysfunctional families tend to triangulate where yes. a wants c to know something so they tell b you tell c Mm-hmm. And then C wants A to know something. So they C talks to B and says you tell A and they they triangulate like this, right? Because right. they're not talking to each other. But if you can yeah. actually get them to talk to each other and listen to each other, then they can actually find out, oh, these are real people. And mm-hmm. you know, there's no fear there. There's there's no fear in love. So and there's no law against love. <laughs> so the best thing to do is to let go of your own fears and your own apprehensions about things and just get to the business of trying to talk with each other and see what love can do and yeah. um, and that that's true in with our body mind relationship and that's true in society and yeah it's really good stuff hey we've had a good time here but we're we're hmm. almost 2 hours in goodness yeah. sake we're live <laughs> I wasn't looking at the clock, so I apologize to everybody that we went so long. Maybe I'll divide it up into two parts. This has been really good.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I I, I, uh,
0: I always learn so much when I'm talking to you, and I um, look forward to the next opportunity.
1: Yeah. Cool. Sounds good.
0: What's your dog's name again? (laughs) Atticus. Adequate.
1: He's 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 getting kind of restless. He's like, Why are you still yeah. at the computer? Yeah. <laughs> so, normally I'm off work around five or whatever, and he's like, Okay, this isn't normal.
0: It's time, okay. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brian.
1: Bye All right, bye. thanks, Karen. All right, bye bye.